Well, we discussed last Sunday that God has a lot to say about money in His Word. And the reason why is because money plays such a big role in our lives. That's why many people, the stats say, many people spend more time thinking about money than not thinking about money. We spend a lot of time thinking about how to, how to make money, how to save money, how to invest money, how to spend money, right? How to borrow money, all of those things. And how we view money, we said last week, we saw in our text last week, how we view money says a lot about where we are or where we are not spiritually. How we use our money now, we use it in, in a way oftentimes, more often than not, to invest in our future here on this earth in this life. That was the topic of our passage last week. If you have your Bibles, turn back there now to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. This entire chapter deals with money. Now, last week we looked at verses 1 through 13, and in that passage Jesus gives a, a parable about a shrewd manager who is poorly handling his master's finances. And when it looks like he is going to lose his job, he uses the, the last bit of power and money and influence that he has to leverage himself to a favorable position in society. So that when he's out of a job with this master, he is, he is set up for the future. And Jesus shares this story, which, which by the way, was a slam on the Pharisees, who we learn in our text today were in earshot of him talking to his disciples. They, it was a slam on them because they had poorly managed their master's treasure and had used their position and power for personal gain, correct? But Jesus shares this story with his disciples to give them a valuable lesson on godliness. And, and here's, here's the lesson. Sinners are shrewder than saints. Sons of this, this age, people of the world, wicked, unregenerate non-believers are more clever in securing for themselves their future than the sons of light. Many in our world today are very consumed with, concerned about securing for themselves a good and, and lofty, comfortable, cushy future in this life because that is all they have. Jesus basically tells his disciples, if that is true of them, if they put all of this, this time and effort into investing in a future that is short and, and fleeting, and ultimately joyless, how much more so should you be investing your, your worldly wealth using your positions and power as believers in this life for kingdom purposes? That's the point. How much more so should you be treasuring up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves 
do not break in and steal. Well, in our passage for today, Jesus, in light of this teaching, is going to be challenged on this teaching. He's going to be opposed. And it doesn't come from a place you might think. You might expect someone like a master to oppose Jesus on this teaching or, or his ambitious manager. They, they are lovers of money, right? Lovers of the world. But it's not an obvious man of the world who challenges Jesus. Let's see who it is. Look at verse 14 of Luke 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. It was the religious leaders who challenged Jesus. They should have been supporting him the most. He is teaching that if we support anything with our money financially, it should be kingdom work. We should invest in people and ministries that bring glory to God and produce fruit that lasts forever. They should have been all about that message, shouldn't they have? The highest religious leaders in the land should have loved this teaching, but they didn't. We're told they ridiculed Jesus. Why? They were lovers of money. I read recently that you know what one idolizes by what they demonize. Very true. The religious leaders demonized Jesus and rejected his teaching because they were lovers of money. In our passage for today, Jesus is going to expose this in their hearts. And he uses something very familiar to do it. He uses the law of God from the word of God. Jesus brings up the law here. And he brings it up for good reason. The Pharisees considered themselves great students of the law, anointed teachers of the law, faithful doers of the law. They, they had actually written and added many laws onto God's law. We've already talked about that to keep them from breaking the law. But, but Jesus is going to use their knowledge of the law to show them how they had violated God's law. And he does this to show them their hearts. Now, before we get into this, let's first talk about what we mean when we say the law. You hear that used a lot in here, right? You hear the word law used a lot in Christian circles. What is the law? Well, when, when the law or the law and the prophets is used, sometimes it's just referring to the Old Testament. The, the law is, is, is mainly used in reference to the Mosaic law given to Israel and found in the first five books of the Bible. And there are three parts to the law of God. You have the great commandments, you have the ordinances, and you have their, their worship system which included the priesthood and the tabernacle and later the temple and the sacrificial system with offerings. And also you had their festivals. And the law served several purposes. One was to reveal the holy nature of God and the fact that God's people were set apart. 
It was to show that they were set apart from the rest of the, the, the nations surrounding them. Its purpose was to, to provide guidance and direction for God's people. And its purpose was also to provide instruction on how God's people were to approach God in worship. And lastly, it also showed the sinful nature of people's hearts and their desperate need of salvation. Over time, many of the religious leaders missed this last purpose of the law. And they began to view the law in this way. They viewed the law as a ladder rather than a mirror. They viewed the law as a ladder that they were to, in their own effort, climb up to, to enter into a right relationship with God instead of a mirror revealing their sinfulness in their desperate need of rescue. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus shows these self-righteous, power-loving, money-hungry, Messiah-hating Pharisees their heart. And folks, this message is not just for them, it's for us. There are things we can learn as we take a long, hard look in the mirror of God's law. So let's, let's do that now. I'm going to read this passage for us, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to examine what the law reveals about them, the Pharisees, and what the law reveals about us and our hearts. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of God, believers. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed them. They ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand this message. I pray that the lost through this message see their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. I pray that they would respond to this message by repenting of their sin placing their faith and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray that the believers listening would be convicted of their sin. They would receive correction from your Spirit through your Word and confess that sin and apply your message and grow in godliness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice three things the law reveals. Three things the law shows us. Number one, it reveals our idols. The law reveals our idols and our lack of desire for God. Now, the law tells us we're to love God, right? 
What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We are to love and serve God. The law tells us that God is to be first. We're to have no other gods before him, right? And that, that command means in my presence. And theology 101, where is God's presence? Where is he? He's everywhere, right? So if God is everywhere and we're to have no other gods in his presence, then there are to be no other gods where? Anywhere. Anywhere. God is to be first. We are not to bow to any other idols. The law tells us this. Tells us that, that our, our lives are his and there is to be nothing in our lives that rivals that relationship. The law tells us that we are to invest our time and our resources and our money into that relationship and his kingdom. Now, when most people hear this, they immediately pause and begin to hesitate and they consider that commitment. If you're being honest, you may not voice that, but, but that's true. You begin to think, that's, that's, that's a pretty big commitment, right? We, and the reason why we, we hesitate when we hear that, that God's to be first, no other before him, is because we do have a lot of idols in our life that rival our relationship with the Lord. There is this battle constantly taking place in our hearts and minds that say, I know I should spend time in God's word. I, I know he should be first, but I really, if I'm being honest, I want to do this or that, whatever this or that is. I, I know I should, should give to support the ministries of the church, but money's really tight right now. And if I'm being honest, I'd rather have money for this or that, whatever this or that is fill in the blank we struggle with idolatry there are things that have taken supreme place in our hearts and lives even good things get this even good things can become bad things when those things become ruling things there are things that can be in your life that are good but they must not rule you they must not take the place in your heart and life that is to be reserved for God alone. The Pharisees struggle with this. Think about what Jesus just finished teaching on. He's called for his disciples to invest time and money and resources in things that matter for eternity, in people, in ministry, in kingdom work. The Pharisees should have agreed with this. There were certain Jewish groups who denied the resurrection, but the Pharisees did not. They believed in life after death with God, yet they ridiculed Jesus for this teaching of investing temporary resources in ministries that produce fruit that lasts forever. And the reason why is because they had idols in their lives. They were lawbreakers. The lovers of the law were great breakers of the law. They were lovers of money. They were mastered by stuff. They were climbers in society. They were lovers of position and power and possessions. So when Jesus comes along and, and his teachings threaten that, while they should have embraced this teaching, instead they ridiculed Jesus for it. Notice three things revealed here about the Pharisees. First, 
The Pharisees loved their position and possessions too much. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. First we see they were lovers of money. Can that be said of you? Are you a lover of money? Is that where your treasure is? Are you treasuring up treasures on earth or in heaven? Are you being rich toward self or rich toward God? Is your desire for money so great that you are resisting supporting God's kingdom work that he has called you to because money is more important? That's one of the many sins of the Pharisees here. They love money too much. They love their position and their, their power, worldly accolades, the empty praise of men. All of these things, we are told, are an abomination in the sight of God. Why? Because these things pose as divine substitutes. They're divine substitutes, and they cannot bring the kind of happiness that God brings. They can't satisfy. They can't satisfy us. They're idols, worthless idols. Remember the rich young ruler? We're going to look at him in Luke chapter 18. He claimed to be a faithful keeper of God's law, but when he was challenged on that, he showed that he was a great lover of money instead, and he did not follow Jesus. Same is true of the Pharisees. That is the path that many are on today. And that is a path that leads to death, which is why it is hated by God. To experience lasting joy and happiness in this life, we must love what God loves. We must hate what God hates. We must approve of what God approves of. Our lives must be centered on Him. Our lives must be devoted to Him. This is where Happiness is found. In Psalm 16, I read it earlier, David says this in verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. They, they love their position and their possessions too much. They, they failed to... to Delight in a relationship with God. They, they didn't value that. They didn't look for that through Jesus. So they failed to experience true and lasting joy, pleasures forevermore. They, they loved their position and their possessions too much. Notice what else? They loved God too little. Now this should make sense, knowing the, what, what Jesus has said in verses 1 through 13 and knowing the point we just made. You cannot love both God and money. They were lovers of money. They did not love God. They, they ridiculed Christ and his message. They rejected the one that, that God had sent. Many of us, we, we hear that, and, and we cannot imagine responding in that way, but we too 
often reject Him with the many idols that we have in our own lives. We allow those things to take the supreme place over our relationship with God. Next point, they love the appearance of righteousness. That was another problem with the religious leaders. Perception was, was really important to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were very concerned with appearances, outward appearances more than the inward condition. They wanted to appear righteous. They, they wanted... Uh, 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 the grand greetings in the marketplace. They wanted the supreme seats of honor in, in the, the festivals that they attended. They, they, were, they, were, they desired those things. They wanted to be perceived in that way. But inwardly, they were empty. Jesus tells them, while you will receive accolades and awards from men, you forfeit heavenly acceptance and reward. Why? Because while they honored God with their lips, they served Him outwardly. Their hearts were far from Him. Their hearts were not right with Him. And listen, folks, if our hearts are not right, there's nothing right about us. It doesn't matter what you say or do. It doesn't matter if you come here each and every week. It doesn't matter if you give 80% of your income. It matters not if your heart is not right with God. That is key. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. While they looked apart outwardly, they were separated from God spiritually. Ask this question about yourself. Who is the real you? Who is the real you? Who are you when it's only you? You know that's who you really are? It was the old Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, who once said this. Look at this quote. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is. Nothing more. Who you are alone before God is who you really are. God knows who you truly are, and what He knows is what is true, and what He knows about you and what is true of you is all that really matters. I'll have people oftentimes stop by my office wanting kind of some encouragement there. What do you think? How do you think I'm doing spiritually? And I'm like, you're not going to stand before me in the final day of judgment. Who cares what I say? Who cares what I perceive? Perceptions aren't often reality. Who are you before God alone? That's who you truly are. And if you're having a difficult time figuring that out, then you need to pray the prayer of David the psalmist that I read earlier in Psalm 139. You need to pray that God would search you and know your heart and try you and know your thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in you and lead you away from that and lead you to the way everlasting. So the Pharisees, they, they loved power and possessions too much. Love God too little. They loved the appearance of righteousness, but had little concern for the inward condition. The law revealed 
these idols in their hearts and their lack of desire for God. That's not the only thing the law revealed. Next point, the law also exposed their sinfulness and their need for salvation. It's what the law does. The law exposes our sinfulness and our great need for salvation. Pharisees often came to Jesus, whom at first they viewed as being a rabbi, a great rabbi, and they were wanting an attaboy from him. And what they often got was a not even close. Not even close. The Pharisees often looked to, to God's law for courage and, and for, for comfort and for, for encouragement that they were close to the kingdom. Remember, they viewed it as a ladder and not a mirror. What they should have seen when gazing into the true meaning of the law, they should have seen their failures, their sinfulness, and their desperate need of forgiveness. That's why Christ is there. That's why He came. They should have seen that, that they were money-loving idolaters who were seeking reputation and affirmation from men rather than pursuing God and investing in His kingdom for His glory. They should have seen their greed, their covetousness, their idolatry. They should have seen that they played fast and loose with the Word of God. They had altered the Word of God in many ways. They had made changes to it. They had, they had compromised the integrity of it. In addition to adding laws to God's laws to protect themselves from violating God's laws, another thing that they were guilty of doing is they made exceptions to make life easier. That's what verse 18 is all about. Skip down, look at verse 18. For everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, if you read this passage this past week, you might have thought that this verse seems randomly placed here, right, and out of place. You might think that Jesus is just sort of changing the subject for a minute drastically. He's not. This is to be read within the context of him addressing the, the Pharisees and in light of what he's already said to them. Jesus is giving an example of how they played fast and loose with the law of God. And this led to many people breaking God's law as a result and violating his design when it comes to the most important relationship on the planet, the marriage relationship. Divorce in Jewish culture in Jesus' day had been, become very common. Does that sound familiar? And the religious leaders were partially to blame for this. Notice Jesus speaks primarily to men divorcing women because in, Jesus, in Jewish culture, that's what happened. The women did not divorce the men in Jewish culture. It was the men leaving the women. In Roman culture, it was more common for women to, to divorce men. But it had become very common in Jesus' day and was often initiated by the husband, become a real issue in this society. So Jesus is addressing the, the, the men in this current cultural context who were divorcing their wives unbiblically and they were, they were marrying other women and they, were, they, were, they didn't have grounds to leave their, their wife and go be with another woman. And so they were committing adultery. Jesus says. 
You're, you're breaking the law of God. Through your exception that you gave, you are leading people to break the very laws of God that you say you treasure. Become a real problem. They were giving lots of exceptions. They did not value the most important earthly institution, the institution of marriage. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.4 that true children of God, they honor the institution of marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among you all. That is what God calls for in His law. The marriage relationship is to be upheld as God initially established it. Get this, between one man and one woman faithfully for a lifetime. It's from God. It's not our idea. It's not society's idea. It's not the world's idea. It's God's idea. It's God's institution. Therefore, God expects His people to hold up marriage in the right way, in the way He established it initially and honor that institution. You can really tell where a person is or isn't by the way they view the marriage relationship. You can tell quickly whether or not a, a church leader is worth his salt by how he views the marriage relationship. Do you see how practical God's word is? Jesus is addressing an issue that speaks right into our context today. His word is living and active. Al Mohler says this, look at this quote on the screen. Christians should give public visible honor and private personal honor to marriage as the monogamous union of a man and a woman. Since the fall, the marriage relationship has suffered, which is an issue because we very clearly see that the state of things in society is a direct reflection of the state of things in the church. And the state of things in the church is often a reflection of the state of things in the home. And the state of things in the home is often a reflection of the state of things in the marriage relationship. In other words, you could say this, as goes the marriage, so goes the home, so goes the church, so goes society. That's why God places such a high value on marriage. But this, this institution was suffering in Jesus' day and is today, especially in the church. And unfortunately, many so-called Christian leaders have made exception upon exception. They, they have acted like the Pharisees, and they have looked for, for loopholes instead of studying what God's Word teaches on marriage and, and counseling accordingly. At the time of Jesus teaching this, many religious leaders were, were teaching that, that Jewish men could divorce their wives for, for all sorts of reasons. I read where one rabbi said, you could divorce your wife if she burned the dinner. You could divorce your wife if you found someone prettier than she was. How do you value God's law? 
Are you a lover and follower of God's law because you're a lover and follower of God? Or have you dealt fast and loose with the Word of God, making compromise, providing exceptions, and finding loopholes? Lovers of God are lovers and doers of His Word. Those who delight in a relationship with God, they delight in His commandments. Our our view and treatment of the law, it, it reveals what's in our hearts. The law reveals our idols. It exposes our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And lastly, last point, The law addresses our problem, but does not provide our solution. Very important that we understand that. The law addresses our problem, but does not provide our solution. Look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. He says the law and the prophets were until John. That's John the Baptist, by the way. He was the last Old Testament prophet. Until the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, God's prophets were preaching, looking for the Messiah to come, right? They were pointing ahead to the Messiah to come. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, he is the last Old Testament prophet, and he is not looking forward to the Messiah to come. He is directing people's attention toward the Messiah who had come. Emmanuel, God in their midst. He he says in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming. Is that what he says? No, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No more looking toward the kingdom to come. It had come. It came in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And when he comes, he brings the kingdom with him. When John sees Jesus, what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was sent as the last Old Testament prophet to usher in God's Savior, His Messiah, His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ came to fulfill the law, to not only address our sin problem, but to provide the solution through His life and through His death and resurrection. Jesus' arrival marked the fulfillment of the words of the prophets of old, of John's teaching Christ ministry, it signaled a great turning point in redemptive history. Up until this time, the only revelation that was available to God's people was the Old Testament, the law and and the prophets, right? Since then, Jesus says, since Him coming, the coming of, of Him and His kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, Jesus says. Who's preaching it? We've been learning about it in Luke, right? Jesus was preaching it and his disciples. He sends them out to preach this message. And the message that they were preaching is the solution to man's sin problem has come. 
The, the solution to the problem had come. They knew there was a problem. They were reminded of it. Every time they walked past that bloody scene in the tabernacle and later in the temple, our problem remains. Our sin problem has not been dealt with. Jesus comes and says, problem solved. His disciples go out and they direct people to Jesus and they say, problem solved. God's son is here. The Pharisees missed this completely, miserably. They missed the fact that God's Son had come to fulfill the words of their prophets. They missed the fact that God's Son had come as the solution to the sin problem. These experts in the Jewish law, they missed it, but I'll tell you who didn't miss it. You know who didn't miss this message? Fishermen prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. They didn't miss it. All of them came. They pressed in on Jesus. They looked to Him, they believed on Him, and they followed Him. Jesus says, this is the calling of all. This is the calling for all. All must come in this way as they have come. He says, since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, that's how we're to come. We're to come forcefully. We're to come and we're to lay our lives down before King Jesus because he is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. Remember, Jesus used the parable of the banquet in Luke chapter 14, to call his disciples to go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. People are compelled to come. They're to come and give their lives over to Jesus. The religious leaders, they missed this. They saw the law as a ladder to climb to get to God, saw Jesus as a demonic violator of God's law, not God's son, who came to fulfill God's law, even though he told them that's exactly who he was. Look at verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus did not come to void the law. He did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. All those transactions that took place by the priest throughout the Old Testament, they were offering those sacrifices in faith, looking forward to the Messiah to come. I've shared that with you before, that every sacrifice they offered up in faith, that was like swiping a credit card again and again and again and again. And when Jesus comes and he lays his life down, he pays our sin debt in full. Wipes it clean forever. He came to fulfill the law. He, he came to perfectly meet the demands of God's command. He didn't cut corners. He didn't play fast and loose with God's law. He didn't find loopholes. He obeyed God perfectly, and he laid his life down as our perfect substitute and sacrifice. He acted as our priest. He offered up himself as our perfect sacrifice, a one-time sacrifice for all time. He took his life back up again. He was raised on the third day so that all of us who look to him, who forsake our way and lay our lives before him, and trust in Him alone for salvation can be forgiven of sin and restored to God through Him forever. That's what He came to do. 
That was the plan from the beginning. The law and the prophets are incomplete without Christ. They address our sin problem. They address our great need of rescue. They do not provide the solution. Only Jesus does. Have you received God's solution to your sin problem? Have you repented of your sin? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation? I pray that you would today. Let's pray together.